new song. We're spending 30 days in Psalm 40. And um, so this is something we do uh, so far three years in. This is an annual tradition now where we take uh, a specific psalm and we just spend 30 days in that psalm. And we do so with a companion devotional that we want to make available to you. So that is what this is. Um, this is available for you uh, every Sunday of the series. You can get this for free in ebook format. Uh, on Amazon, you put in Psalm 40 devotional into the little search box on Amazon, and you can have this for free. Uh, it will also be in the Covenant Church Facebook uh, every single morning that there is a devotional. It will be there at 6 a.m., and so you can follow it that way. We really just want you to have access to it for free if you so choose, and so this is out there for you in any number of ways. If you don't know how to get it, or you need help getting it, or it's not downloading or whatever, you can always uh, email us. You can email me, kyle at bgcovenant.org, or office at bgcovenant.org, and we will help you sort through all your issues, technological and otherwise. So um, what we'll do then is, uh, last week we talked about waiting. The first part of the psalm really dealt with waiting. What does it mean to wait patiently? What does it mean to wait in this world where we're always waiting on something? If you missed it, uh, it's sort of important to go through kind of each of them and, and get a foundation. And as we're doing the whole psalm, it would seem uh, sort of rational to just sort of do them in order. Uh, we are going to pick up in the second week, and that's okay. We can start there. But if you missed it, you can always go back online. You can listen to it on our website. Um, you can click on sermons and find it there. If you have iTunes or Google Play or however you do that, you can go and find uh, the Covenant Church Sermon Podcast, and you can always listen to anything uh, that you miss. And so last week was waiting. This week we move on to wonders, uh, to wonders. And in doing so, I, it occurs to me that vacation season is upon us. How many people already have a vacation plan for just any time in the next few months? You got something? Yeah. Like most people have something uh, on the horizon, a vacation of some sort. We love to talk about vacations. So a vacation season for Americans is kind of testimony season for us where uh, we sort of load up on these social media testimonies that we're going to get to tell about wherever we went. And so uh, whether your business trip to Florida, I heard about, Kip, I heard about your business trip to Florida. Also heard that he had his toes in the sand just a little bit, but don't tell the company too much of that. He did the conference he was supposed to do. We heard about the Grand Canyon trip. So there was a good bunch of guys in here that did a Grand Canyon trip and made the rest of us all jealous. And then we saw pictures of them on the, the rim of the Grand Canyon, and they have these death-defying stories of, well, defying death, I guess, is what those would be about. We know about uh, all your things coming up. We know about the beaches and the Amish country. We know about uh, the cities and the tours and all the things that everybody has going on because vacation season is testimony season. We love to share our experiences, and there's nothing wrong with this. We give little testimonials about our everyday life um, when we're excited. We uh, like to go to New York City. We're actually taking a, a, what is it called, a road trip. We're getting a family road trip. We uh, so like living in this part of the country because we can drive somewhere in less than uh, six or seven days, which is not true in Texas, where if you want to drive anywhere, you just might as well um, pack up the, the Beverly Hillbillies van because that's how much stuff you need to get there. So to be able to get anywhere in less than six or seven or 12 or 15 hours is a great blessing for us, and we're excited. We're going to New York City, and we're going to stay there for a few days, and then on the way back from there, we're going to, uh, because we have small children, go through Hershey, Pennsylvania because they have light posts that look like Hershey Kisses, and what else do you need to know? So we're going to do that for a night and let the kids go and get some cavities, and then we'll come home. And you will get, in your social media feed, I'm sure, at some point, you will get a recap of this trip. We will be excited about it. We'll tell you all about it, all the fun stuff we did. We'll take all the best pictures, none of the ones of people crying or complaining about their legs hurt, none of those. None of the ones pulled over on the side of the road, all just the good ones, and we'll show you how much fun we had and how much you wish you were like us. We, we've done this in New York City before. My wife and I enjoy New York City for uh, sort of unknown reasons, I guess, but we've gone there a bunch of times, and, and at one point, uh, we started staying in this hotel called the Pod Hotel, 
And, and just the name should give you an, a sense of what we're going for. It's, they're kind of pods, not the Tokyo, like you sleep in a tube kind of things, but not far from that. Um, it's like an eight foot by eight foot uh, room with bunk beds, like two, not a single bunk bed, whatever smaller than a single bed, like a two cots almost. But it's like this bunk bed thing with a sink in it, and there's a little chair, and that's all that's in the room. The, the bathrooms are all shared out in the hallway. It's a very European kind of place. Above your doorway, there's these uh, four little toilet symbols. And, and when the red light is on, the toilet is occupied. And when the red light is off, you can run and try to use that one. And so it's this kind of interesting thing we did because you want to go to New York City. It's expensive. And so we, we said, well, let's try this to see if we can save some money and still have a good time. And we loved it because you never are in the hotel anyway. So we'd sleep in this little pod, and then we'd go out and enjoy the city, and we'd come back and sleep in the pod, and it was great. So we start telling some friends about how great it was. We start testifying, and they go, this does sound great. We should all plan a trip there together. And I say, well, okay now, just hold on. I have to explain to them that when I first explained to my wife how small this room was going to be, she kind of looked at me like, yeah, I get it. It's small. I know. You know we've been on missionary journeys. We've stayed in some weird places. I'm sure it's going to be fine. And I was like, no, I don't think you understand. This is really small. Like, it's going to shock you. She said, I got it, no worries. So we went in, and when we first walked into the hotel room, I opened the door, and I was like, voila, here it is. You know, it's our closet. And, and she looked in and sort of couldn't help herself. She was smiling and trying to hold the smile, and then the tears just started coming. <laughs> and she was like, this is not a room. This is not $153 a night either. Like, and you go, no, this is New York City, good luck. And, and she kind of figured out, and she composed herself, and she got over it. And by the end, like I'm saying, she was all in on this hotel. So we tell these friends who want to book a trip with us together, we say, listen, there's something we have to warn you. We've told you how great this hotel is and how centrally located it is and how cheap it is, but it's really small. And Steph goes, no, you don't understand, guys. It's really small. Like I cried when I saw how small it was. We get out a tape measure and we start taping out just how small this room is. And I was like, look, you can touch both walls standing in the middle. And, and they're looking at us like, it can't be that bad. No big deal. We take them up. We get on a plane. We land together. We get in the cab, fight our way into Midtown. We get out of the hotel. They're like, man, this looks nice. Ooh, the energy of the city, all the silly things people say. We go up to the room. They put their little key card in. It blinks green. They open the door and the wife starts to cry. It's so small, she said. I said, I know, you'll be okay. You'll get used to it. Let's go out. Hurry, leave the room. And by the end of it, of course, they were then telling other people, you have to stay at this hotel. It's sort of this thing we do, that we all have these ideas, these experiences, and once we get them and they become part of us, then we want to share them with those around us. We testify. Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. We're talking about the wonders of God today. And, and ultimately what this is about is the trustworthiness of God. Stop for a second and, and consider the wonders that you are currently immersed in in your everyday life. Like, we'll take the example of a dad who goes out to play catch with his son. This is not me, I have no son, but some of you have sons. Some of you are sons, I was a son. And for dad to go out in the front yard, the backyard, the side yard, the garage, wherever, and to play catch with his son, throw a baseball back and forth, consider the wonders that that requires. Consider the, uh, the human eye. 
one of the most remarkably complex things ever conceived of. And it's remarkably complex whether you buy uh, the irreducible complexity theory or not. And if you've never heard of the irreducible complexity theory, you can Google that and read all about this online argument over whether the human eye is proof of a creator or not, irreducible complexity. You can ask Jeffrey Kirkbride. He'll tell you all you need to know. But what you need to know about the eyeball, the human eye has two million moving parts. What? Two million moving parts just in your eye. So the dad and the son, they go out to play catch. And this little smartly designed ocular thing with its two million moving parts is able to focus and send images back and forth to the brain, which then the brain deciphers the image that's given to it by this two million moving parts eye. And then the brain sends an electronic, electric signal to the muscles in the arms and the legs and the fingers, which then track the ball and receive it with near-perfect timing. And then he picks the ball out and he throws it back. And both of them are engaging in a consistent series of miracles back and forth, which is to say nothing of the soul-level emotional satisfaction that they uh, derive from something as arbitrary as throwing a piece of rubber surrounded in calfskin and catching it into a cowskin mitten, which is really strange. But it's what we do. It should stir wonder when we think about it. It should stir wonder when you send an email or a text that somehow we've gotten to a place where anyone around the world can communicate with anyone around the world by tapping your thumbs against some glass a few times. And somehow that message, I don't know if you've considered this, gets sent somewhere as little bits of data that gets decoded after it gets shot off a few satellites that are orbiting the earth and sent down to someone else's little device, which creates the same message that you just sent them. Consider right now you're breathing. This is sort of a miracle. Wow, I'd forgotten I was breathing for a minute there. It's, it's incredible that this room, we're swimming in air. You bring it in through your nose or your mouth, hopefully your nose. And it floods into your lungs through these bronchial tubes and into these little air sacs, alveoli, which then have the amazing ability to extract the oxygen from the air that I can't see. It extracts the oxygen, sending it into your bloodstream, keeping you alive. And then, like clockwork, you exhale all of the waste of air that you didn't need. All the stuff you can't use, your body knows how to not take that in, and it releases it in a little carbon dioxide cloud, and you move on and take another breath. That's amazing. But we've lost the wonder of it. That children have the capacity to love and snuggle should create wonder. That in spring, the trees flower should create wonder in us. In summer, when you take your first bite of like the, the fresh peach that shows up on your kitchen table, that should create wonder. And these are the simple things. What I would argue is that wonder is one of God's ways of engendering trust with us. Wonder is one of God's ways of engendering trust with us. Uh, consider the first time you got on an airplane. For most people, getting on an airplane the first time is a little bit, uh, it's, a little, it's a little dicey. Because when you stop and think about the idea of this 500-ton metal um, contraption being 30,000 feet above the earth going 500 miles an hour, 
that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you do it enough, and all of a sudden, you don't even think about it anymore. You get on the airplane, you get in your seat, you complain that you didn't get a drink fast enough. All the while, you're going 500 miles an hour, 30,000 feet above the earth in this giant 500-ton metal contraption. And the whole idea of aerodynamics never even comes into mind. Why? Because the first time you were going, I don't know if this is going to work. This seems like a bad idea to me. Why are we all getting on this plane? This could all end badly. And the 20th time you get on a plane, the wonder of the consistent production of safe flight has engendered trust in you. I now trust that the plane is going to get from point A to point B. The wonder leads to trust. And so David says, many, Lord, are the wonders you have done. Many, Lord, are the wonders you have done. You want to alter your world? You want to learn to appreciate uh, everything around you, big and small? You want to learn to take these thoughts captive and to have this daily experience of going, wow, I'm breathing. I often uh, prescribe to people, as much as I can prescribe anything as a pastor, a gratitude journal. I say, at the end of the day, write down the three things that you're grateful for. Nothing more, nothing less. Three things you couldn't have done on your own that you're grateful for. And it starts out really, almost everybody starts out the same. Well, I guess my health. I, mean, I have no control over that. You know, in this relationship, wow, that's really cool that that happened. And maybe this one other thing I, I, I can taste, and I had this meal, and it was good. And so I, I should be grateful for that. And as the days go by, as you keep a gratitude journal, you look back over the days, and, and even your gratitude starts to deepen and mature, and you start to notice more and more around you that you have no ability to control and yet absolutely enjoy with every moment of your life. There's three things a day that you cannot claim credit for. And so just writing them down is an incredible discipline that can help reinstill wonder in your world to start to realize that, that there's this list of, of just endless wonders that God has created. When you have a gratitude journal, what you do is you slowly start to recapture the awe of God. Recapturing the awe of God is recapturing the appreciation for God. Because the odds are that most of us had domesticated God to some level or another domesticated God. So to recapture a reverential awe for God is to reconsider and relocate our appreciation for God. So next time you get on an airplane, maybe you'll stop before you board and you'll look at it and you'll go, this is pretty insane. And you'll get on and you'll just have a little bit more appreciation for the fact that the ticket says I'm going to get there and I get there. And actually I get there almost always near the time that it says I'm going to get there. How do they even know? And appreciation rises. The same thing is true when we look at God that way. When we begin to, to take a step back and go, if I just have to make myself say it out loud, maybe I'll appreciate it differently. Hmm. We shrink big things to fit into small brains is what we do as humans. We shrink things and we tame things and we train things and we do our best to put a leash on things so that we can control them and we can understand them. We live in the Great Lakes region. I am still... Unfortunately, for my wife's sake, fascinated by the Great Lakes, so she never stops hearing about them. Many of you have lived here your whole lives, and they're just these just big bodies of water, and sometimes you fish on them, or you fly over them, or whatever, but they're incredible. And if you stop and think about it, it blows your mind. You can conceive of them. Maybe you can see the shape in your mind. You can see the shape of the Great Lakes, the sticker on the back of someone's car. You're like, oh yeah, there it is. There they are. But that's abstract. I could tell you the surface area of the Great Lakes is larger than the surface area of the state of Texas, which to you means nothing. It's abstract. I could tell you that there are six quadrillion gallons of fresh water in the Great Lakes, which to you means nothing, because that's a lot of zeros and it's abstract. But what if I told you that each human on Earth could have a gallon of fresh water every day for 700 
650,000 years out of the Great Lakes. Eight billion people on earth, and every single human being on earth could have a gallon of fresh water every day for 750,000 years. Days. Oh, gosh. 2,054 years, much less impressive, I know. Listen, I only, only correct myself because there's someone in here who's a math genius who's like, quadrillion? No, I think you did the... Okay. Still, how about going 2,000 more years and every human on earth having a gallon of fresh water? Is that a, does that start making more sense to us? We go, whoa, that's a lot of water. Six quadrillion means nothing. That means something. We start to have this awe-inspiring feeling of like going, oh, this is pretty cool. But familiarity, we say familiarity breeds contempt. It actually breeds forgetfulness. The spouse you were floored by on day one is still there. You just take the good stuff for granted now because you have it. Which there's some spouse in here that's going, yeah, but she changed, he changed. And be like, you didn't? Yes. You should hope so. You mature. You grow. We do that with God, though. We, we shrink God into a shape and into a form that we can hold in our minds, that we, can, that we can hold in our hearts more effectively. We shrink God and we get, become familiar with God and we forget the whole thing. This is dangerous because this shrunken half-God that we've created becomes comparable to the lesser gods that we want to keep, the idols in our world that we'll naturally chase. Let's say it this way. If wine is just grape juice, then you're really one step from purple Kool-Aid. Yeah, well, wine's just grape juice, and grape juice is just sort of a sweetened, purpley drink, and so then it's Kool-Aid. And all of a sudden, you're equating uh, Kool-Aid and fine wine. And there's some in this room that would be like, well, I would equate those two things, and good for you. But there's others in the room that would go, come on, please. Or, or tell uh, Mark and Bill, they tell the guys who went on the, the Grand Canyon trip, tell them that you've seen a canyon before. You don't really need to see the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Look. I dug a trench in my backyard one time. It was like four feet wide and a foot and a half deep. I don't need to see that, okay? Fell in, even sprained my ankle. And they would look at you and go, you got to see it. If you haven't seen it, you have to see it. Why? Because I, I, can't, I can't compare the two. I can't, I can't tame the thing you've seen far enough down to help you understand what you're missing. Or to say, I've been to a waterfall, so I don't need to see Niagara. Or for Billy Graham, who saw Niagara Falls and went to uh, Zimbabwe and saw Victoria Falls, he said, Victoria Falls makes Niagara Falls look like a drip or a trickle out of a faucet. I go, I want to see that. I got a faucet. I haven't seen the falls. Eugene Peterson's translation of, of Psalm 40, verse 5 in the message says it this way. He says, nothing and no one comes close to you. I start talking about you, telling what I know, and quickly run out of words. Neither numbers nor words account for you. Nothing and no one comes close to you. I start talking about you, telling what I know, and quickly run out of words. Neither numbers nor words account for you. Do you hear the love in that statement? The awe in that statement? Saying there are not words to describe that David is being left speechless of this indescribable God. Everybody has the friend who tries to explain something. They go have some great experience, and they try to explain this meal they had, and they spend 20 minutes explaining it, and at the end they go, ah, I don't know, you just, you'd have to be there. 
You go, well, why didn't you say that 20 minutes ago? You wasted all of our time. Everybody has that friend. Why do people feel so obliged to try that, though? Why do we, why do we just spew words and try to explain stuff to other people? Because we've had an incredible experience, and we can't wait to tell you about it, and we can't quite let you know what it is, but it, it's this, this feeling David has. It's this indescribable beauty and awe, and we're just busting with it. Ask a mom to explain seeing her baby for the first time. And just articulate it cleanly for me in 20 or 30 seconds. How'd that feel? And I'll show you the mom who would laugh at you. Be like, there's no, I'm, no what? No amount of words is going to explain the feeling. I can't tell you what the stars look like above the Rift Valley on a dark night. I can't tell you. I could try. And four or 5,000 words later, I'd be like, you know what? You just had to be there. Part of the human condition is we can't explain the deepest joys in life without reducing them. And sometimes the problem is we reduce them and then we start to believe the reduced version that we just told. The human condition can't explain our deepest joys without reducing them. And then we've reduced them and told them and we go, maybe that's really the reality. Maybe it's not as amazing as I thought it was. This is the psalmist's impression of trying to describe God, to explain his goodness, to show his splendor. He gives up. He says, none can compare. And still we forget. God created all of this. Sustains my breath, my capacity to love, a heart that feels something. And we can consider that, and we can sit in that, and we can marinate in that and go, that's true, I believe that. And we can still walk through a Monday and it never occurs to us to pray. Not as some ritual, but as a way to reach out and thank God for the thing we run into the second we run into it. Wow. God, look at that sunrise. That was you. God, look at that tree. That was you. God, I almost hit that deer. That was you. Like either all of this reminds us of God, or we have to ask ourselves if we've removed God from the filter. So to be a Christian... To be a Christian, then, is to fight for the primacy of God in our every day. To be a Christian is to fight for the primacy of God in our every day. To have the heart of David and avoid domesticating God. To avoid shrinking God, which leads to giving our heart and affection to something else, something lesser, because now they're comparable. So we want to give our heart and affection to something we can touch or something we can grasp in our mind, to something that we can control. What are those things in your life? What are the things in your life that have replaced God as the, the place of greatest attention, the greatest affection, of greatest hope? Those things in your life that if you're honest about it, you go, you know, this, this is sort of maybe the thing I, I wake up thinking about, or this is the, the first thing I check when I, I have a break at work, or, or this is the thing I go to bed thinking about, or, you know, if someone was able to get in my brain and just do an audit, they would be able to tell you that I spend more time thinking about this, this, and this than I do recognizing that God is the reason that any of those things even exist. This is why prayer and scripture are, are such an important daily discipline because they remind us daily of the ridiculous wonders of God. They, they root us in truth. Therefore, we can't ever get so far from truth that we forget who created truth in the first place. This is the wonder creating trust again. When we look around the world and we go, God, if you can do that, then maybe you, maybe you can 
help me with this problem. God, if you can do this, that sunrise, if you can do that, if that's your artistry, if that's your handiwork, if you are the author of that, perhaps you can help me in my little tiny problem in my life. If you can suspend planets, if you can create an eye with two million moving parts, and then I don't even recognize that I have it anymore. I just use it and take it for granted. If you can do that, maybe you're trustworthy to do the little things in my life. We have to find an excuse to do this, though. We have to find a reason to get back into a rhythm where we recognize God in every aspect of our life. One of the things that um, was a weird thing that came out of my missionary time in South Africa is is we lived in this uh, run-down inner-city neighborhood that had been taken over uh, by Islam. So all the churches had fled and closed down, and in their place, uh, Muslims had bought the churches and had turned them into uh, Islamic centers, had turned them into mosques. And so from uh, the window of the church where we worked, the second-story window, you could see three mosques out on the horizon with the minarets rising up into the sky, and five times a day you could hear the prayer everywhere in the neighborhood. Five times a day. You go to the local banking center on the high street just outside of downtown, and, and it's a totally secular bank, and they offer Sharia banking, meaning you can do your banking by Muslim law. And they'll set it up for you just right so you can keep the law of your religion while having the security of a bank. And I found myself jealous. Imagine going down the street and walking into Huntington and they say, hey, we have a Christian account for you. It upholds all Christian standards and ethics straight out of scriptural principles. None of your money will ever be invested in anything unethical, anything that's opposed to the law of God. We're going to help you set up a plan so you can give generously to things you care about giving to. We would be dumbfounded. Christian banking. And yet in in South Africa, I was everywhere you went, there was some aspect of this faith that was staring you in the face. But it was that five times a day prayer that got me. I came home and I bought a bamboo mat off Amazon. And I convinced myself that maybe there was something in this idea where I have to get down on my knees and I have to get down on my face and multiple times a day, maybe I should just remember. And it was a profound season for me because I'd been taught the Western evangelical Christian way to pray, which is like, you know, just pop one off here and pray over there and sneak one over there and on your lunch break, say a prayer. And I was like, that just became ritual real fast. And this other thing would become ritual real fast, too, if you let it. But for me, I needed the switch up to go, I need multiple times a day to stop and get on my knees and remember who made me. And I was thankful to God that Islam existed so that they could teach me a little bit more reverence in the way that I pray. That remembrance rekindled the wonder. The wonder rekindled the trust. The trust is ultimately then where our faith is rooted. So how do we do that in our daily lives? How do we take that and translate that into a way that that actually affects the world outside of us? I would argue that testifying, that giving testimony where we started, testifying leads to greater trust and greater faith. Later we're going to see in verse 9, David says, I do not seal my lips, I proclaim your saving acts. David's talking about this thing that he's going through and he's being delivered from his enemies and yet he, he loves God so much and the wonders of God are on his heart and he can't seal his lips. They just, he keeps proclaiming. 
He doesn't know how not to say something. He can't contain the goodness. To which I would say, your life contains and communicates something for everyone. Your life communicates something to everyone. Your day tells the world a story. Your lifestyle tells your kids what matters most in your world. What is that thing? What is being communicated to those around you that you care most about? Two, would you be proud of it? And three, on your last day, when your friends gather around to memorialize you, will you be happy that the thing they remember most about you is that thing? I don't want my children, my grandchildren, to come to my funeral and remember how much I liked a hobby or how much I got into this niche idea. I want them to know how much I love God. I want them to see that the wonders of every day went through a God filter. That we couldn't go on vacation without going, gosh, look at that thing. And instead of going, who's the architect? We go, man, isn't God incredible that he created us with this ability to create and design? So we go to the top of a building in two weeks and we stand 110 floors above New York City and we look out over the city. Will I champion architecture or the architect? And that's an everyday, every moment decision we make with our lives. What is it that we care about and what are we communicating to others? Most people say, I don't tell people about Jesus. I don't live my faith out loud because I'm not really sure how to articulate it. I would say you're not sure how to articulate it because you don't tell people about Jesus and your salvation. Most people say I'd be more open with my faith if I were more confident in my growth or more confident in my walk with Jesus. I say you would be more confident in your growth and your walk with Jesus if you were more open about your faith. Most people say I don't want to be one of those people. And we all know who those people are. I say you are one of those people. Act like it. What would you like to be identified with instead? Follower of Christ? Or some lesser thing. We will rave about vacation destinations and new restaurants and the brand of mower we bought. And a thousand other even more silly things. But not Jesus who can transform someone's eternity. Who can bring life out of death. And so that leads us to the hard truth for today. The hard truth is that when we share, often it's really about us. And our desire to grab some affirmation somewhere. I want you to like the same restaurant as me, so I'll feel more confident in liking that restaurant. I want to tell you about the hotel we stay in in New York, because if you stay there, then that lends some credibility to me, because I stayed there and you stayed there, so now we actually look like we know what we're doing. If you like this band, and I like this band, then maybe I'm not such a loser. Maybe they're cool. If you send your kid to this school, and I send my kid to this school, then we can, okay, I'm not in it alone. And all these decisions, all these testimonies that we give about these things, they're all looking for someone else to send back something and and join us in that and affirm us where we sit. So when we testify, it's mostly for our affirmation because one of our deepest fears in life is the fear of rejection. Biblical testimony is different because we are already affirmed. Because we sing the song, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. 
I'm no longer a slave to fear. I no longer have to worry about being rejected. I no longer have to worry about being enslaved or in bondage. I no longer have to worry about any of that stuff. And so when I put my faith out there, if someone rejects it, it doesn't matter because I'm already affirmed. And if the world thinks I'm a crazy person because I love Jesus more than I love my favorite sports team, oh well. But we're so terrified that people might reject us or people might look at us funny or they might label us. And I ask you, what label would you rather have? Your faith in Jesus means you are secured. Your eternity in heaven is locked down. Your identity as a child of God is guaranteed. You have no rejection left to find. So you can be fearless in sharing your faith. You can have nothing to lose. And the people you share with have everything to gain. You consider the wonders of God, the love and the security and the peace and the joy. You consider all the things that God has. And you can consider whose life would be changed if they had access to him. Who in your life, if they had access to the faith that you have, if they had access to the hope in their lives or the joy or the peace, whose life would be transformed today with that? And then imagine your next conversation with them. We're going to talk about the weather. Talk about favorite sports team. Mention that thing our kid did. And then just sort of go back to living. God has surrounded us with wonders so that we would trust him, so that we would see his goodness and his majesty, so that we would feel awe and reverence around every turn, so that we wouldn't be able to get through a day without going, wow. And as that wonder fire gets stoked in us, then that thing that he has hardwired into us that just gives us no choice but to testify about the stuff we love, that that fire would burn so brightly that we would just be walking emblems of him. Ambassadors, Paul would say. People that carry the name of Christ on our lips. Not as hypocrites who say we can't do any wrong now. Not as proud or arrogant that we figure something out. But as the humble people who say that Jesus got on the cross and died for me. He rose from the dead and he included me in his new life. And as a result, as a broken, sinful person, I've been made new and been made whole. And because of that, I got nothing to fear. And I'd love for the world to have that too. I don't really know how you apply this. I don't know if you need a gratitude journal and you start there and you go, hey, every night I'm going to write down three things. Just to start to cultivate this reminder in my life that God is active and he's here and there are wonders all around. Maybe that's it. Maybe there's somebody that you've been having small talk conversations with for a long time and the Spirit's been nudging you to have a bigger conversation for a long time and you haven't had it. Maybe that's what you do. Maybe it's simply going back and answering the question, if I died today, what would people remember me for? And then being honest about the answer and honest about whether we'd want that to be different. My hope is that you would not walk out of here today with any sense of guilt or shame. That stuff is hard to hear because it's, it's true of all of us. It's true of all of us that we fall short. It's true of all of us that we're not quite there. It's true of all of us that we're still on the journey, which is why Christ had to come and die, because if any of us had figured it out and been perfect, we didn't need him. All fall short, and Jesus makes up the difference. Jesus is the replacement that makes us whole again. And so don't go out of here in guilt and in shame and go, man, they really told me how terrible I was. 
The hope is that you would go out of here going, I need to rely on Christ that much more. Because when I don't, I got the ability to slip into this life that I didn't actually ever want. So it's really easy to live. And maybe this summer, as you see those testimonies start popping up on social media, around the neighborhood, when you hear about people's vacations, it pings you. And you get this little thing in the back of your mind that goes, oh yeah, testimony. When your neighbor gets a new mower, you go, oh yeah, that's something, isn't it? And as we talk about those things we love and they begin to bubble up around us, may it remind us to be people that are constantly testifying about what we love most as well. Reminding us that that thing that God has given us was not given to us to end on us. But that we would be conduits sharing that love with all around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious to us. You are rich in grace and mercy, and you've shared it with us, and you've allowed us to walk into this life with you and to experience this beauty with you. Thank you for the way you've designed the place around us. Father, I pray that as a community that we would be in tune with your design. God, that we would be aware of the wonders of your of your hands, of the handiwork of your creativity. Father, we wouldn't be so concerned with our own images, our own status, that we would be trying to get others to affirm us, but God, that we would look around this place and we would affirm you and your presence. Father, that when we even open our eyes after a prayer, that we would go, I can see and I can imagine how complicated that must be. And we become thankful for a designer. God, that when we taste that lunch that we're waiting for after church, when we taste, we admire the way that you've created variety and spice, that you've created nourishment in a way that you have. Father, may everything in this place, in this earth, may it all point back to you. So God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the reality around us, and God, you would give us a boldness to share that with those that we love. Father, stoke the fire of goodness in us. Stoke the fire of your peace and your hope. Stoke the fire of your salvation. And may we burn brightly for all to see. May the thing we as a community be known for, above all the other good things, is that we are about you and we love you. God, that you have saved us and your salvation is free and on offer. God, we pray that we would be beautiful ambassadors of that. In Jesus' name, amen. As a community, we continue to worship, and we also take communion every single Sunday. There's two tables here at the front, and there's one uh, at the back. Communion for us is as it was laid out in Scripture. It's a remembrance that Jesus left for his followers to say, when you eat of this bread, remember me. When you take the cup, remember me. So when we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, we remember that Jesus gave his body and his blood. That they were laid down so that we might have true life. He gave his. That we might have hope. He abandoned his. That we might have peace. He went through what he went through on the cross. So we remember together. We're reminded. Hopefully we are refreshed and revitalized to go and take the world on anew. If you're a guest with us, if you are uncomfortable with this, if this is the first time for you and you go, I don't know what that's all about, um, we're glad you're here.
There's no pressure to do this. There's no pressure. No one's counting. No one's watching. Feel free, if you're a follower of Christ, to come and join us. We would love to have you join us in this. And if you're not, feel free to stay in your seat to rest.